Then the hot news just uh, published yesterday was a United Kingdom trial using dexamethasone, the so-called recovery trial. Hello, I'm Faith Rogers, host of today's program, COVID-19, Keeping Up with a Moving Target. This is the June 17th update of DKB Med Radio's Coronavirus Educational Series. Thank you for joining us. Today's program is accredited for ANCC and AMA PRA Category 1 credits. Please visit our website for complete CME and CE information. To attest for CME and CE credit, please visit covid19.dkbmed.com. There, you will also find all of our previous COVID-19 programs and have access to other free CME and CE programs on a wide range of topics. The slides for today's webinar and previous webinars can be found under the resource tab. Today's learning objectives are, identify risk factors for complications of COVID-19, including age, race and ethnicity, and comorbidities. Discuss risks for severe and critical COVID-19 patients and discuss data pertaining to use of convalescent plasma in people with severe COVID-19. With us today, we have Dr. Paul Allwater, Clinical Director of the Division of Infectious Disease at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. Thanks for your time, Dr. Allwater. Yeah, thank you, Faith. And again, please remember that this program is only available because of the generous support of DKB Med, the Postgraduate Institute of Medicine, as well as the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. More information on COVID-19 is available at the covid19.dkbmed.com website. So as we continue to look at each week, I think many of you have heard about so-called hotspots in many states that may have not had large numbers of cases in the United States, states that opened up early with loosened restrictions, such as the Carolinas, Texas, Florida, and other states, there still remains robust numbers of new cases in many countries, including Central and South America, India, and we suspect also Africa, although testing numbers there are much lighter. Overall, we are now months into this, but one of the puzzles are why some people are so much more effective than others. And what I hope to do is just a review some of the information which already may be well known, but just to reemphasize the, the groups of people that seem to be at higher risk, and then perhaps trying to start nibbling at some of those factors. Unlike influenza, COVID-19 is very interesting because really, Children and adolescents are at very low risk for being hospitalized, whereas that's not true for seasonal flu. But like seasonal flu, people over the age of 65 really appear to be at the highest risk. And then there are other factors as well due to comorbidities, but just merely age over 65 is a risk factor, although of course many people of that age have other health problems. The other attribute, which we're not sure if it's genetic, if it's access to care, socioeconomic factors, or some mix, which is highly probable, is that certain people, just like in seasonal influenza, are at higher risk. And the highest risk is the same for influenza. That's Native Americans 
and Native Alaskans. But we also see Blacks as being much more susceptible, Hispanics, and then least so Caucasians. So why this is the case is really unclear. There may be genetic factors. There clearly are for some infections, such as tuberculosis and malaria. So it would not be surprising, but uh, we'll try to dive into that a little bit, but I'm sure it is not the whole answer. The other is the comorbidities, and many of you are familiar with these because, again, just to draw analogy to influenza as a two-for-one, they're very similar. Uh, people with chronic health problems, including in the lung and heart. But what's a little different and still unknown, I believe in my mind, if it's true, is hypertension. Is that merely something that tracks with age? or is that really an independent risk factor? Obesity, though, is clearly a risk factor in all age groups. And this is really a BMI of over 30, whereas over 40 is needed for flu. Pregnancy, of course, is another. But if you look at the bottom where there's no known conditions, in adults, they only represent about 8.5% of patients. So it's important that even in older ages, if you are healthy without health problems, it does place you at lower risk. But if you look conversely at the few pediatric cases, many of those, about half, will have health problems. And if you were to look at the entire dynamic, which is going to be how we usually look at seasonal influenza, that's pneumonia and influenza type illnesses together, but now we throw in COVID-19. Back in 2017 and 2018 was a particularly vicious seasonal influenza year with H3N2, and uh, there was indeed a higher mortality rate there above the so-called 6% baseline that does sort of wax and wane. But what you can see, of course, with COVID, which was not due to influenza, is a considerable spike far in excess. And indeed, COVID-19 is a more serious illness than influenza. So many people have asked, what about the genetics? Is there something about people, whether it's whites, it's blacks, others that are somehow at the mix? And unfortunately, at the moment, what we sort of have are Asian and European data. Before we get to this slide, there have been reports from China and elsewhere that people who had certain uh, blood groups, namely A is being more at risk and O is being protective, came out of China. And this study, uh, which was performed in Spain and Italy, looked at nearly 2,000 patients who had severe COVID disease. So this is not the, the people that just were infected but not severely ill, versus population control. And they looked at single uh, nucleotide polymorphism. So they didn't sequence the whole human genome, but this was sort of a quick and dirty approach. But it does lead to some uncertainty. But what I thought was intriguing, and this is a preprint, it has not yet been peer-reviewed, but sequence data has hopefully been done properly. And what they found were two chromosomal associations that seemed to be at informative. One was on the ninth chromosome that indeed showed that if you were A positive, that you had a, a nearly 40 to 50% higher chance of developing severe COVID disease. 
On the other side, if you're lucky enough to be in the O blood group, it was about 35% protective. So it's sort of uh, very interesting that way and why blood types would have something to do with this, I think is anyone's guess. Now, a lot of people predicted that maybe it has something to do with the number or the binding of the novel coronavirus receptor, the ACE2. And indeed, at least with this particular study, chromosome three locus was identified with perhaps six genes, some of which were known to interact with this particular receptor, although this is not as defined. So there may be some abilities to discern this. This may also be important if we ever proceed with human challenge vaccine studies. We could sort of say, gosh, you know, you're at risk for severe disease. Maybe we don't want to test the vaccine in you. But on the other hand, these are the people that need the vaccine most and, and could also be perhaps some way that if we have to allocate vaccines early, if this is reproduced, maybe the case. Now, it's been a little bit of a busy week for COVID therapeutics. Remdesivir, of course, we've talked about before on these, but although we have some human trials, I just wanted to point out a trial which was very similar to one we discussed weeks ago with the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome coronavirus, uh, where remdesivir was used and appeared to be protective. They did the same thing, but this time using the novel coronavirus, the SARS-CoV-2, and indeed that particular particular situation was such that they experimentally infected these rhesus macaques and then administered remdesivir within 12 hours. And to me, the take-home points were that these uh, animals were protected from developing pneumonia. And they also had some reduced viral load in the lung, but not in the upper airways. And to me, what's informative here, although this is a primate model, is a lot of times studies have been looking at viral load in the upper airways, such as the nasopharynx or the oropharynx, and perhaps that's not really one of the best endpoints for monitoring, since we know this virus tends to like the lung where there's uh, many more ACE2 receptors. So I just thought this was an interesting add to the information as we try to sort and understand studies. And, and it seems to me that remdesivir have given very early, and of course, no one's going to get this drug within 12 hours as a human after infection, but at least informs that this drug does work better if given earlier. And so, you know, it was only uh, a total of six monkeys that received this of the 12, and they did have reduced pneumonia on this. So we'll sort of see if some additional trials that are seeing patients earlier in the disease process may benefit more than the studies that we're aware of so far, where many patients got it later in the disease course. I wanted to mention a point about convalescent plasma. We're still waiting for large randomized controlled trials regarding its use, but since this was approved in late March by the FDA under emergency use, this group that has been very interested in getting convalescent plasma into patients led by Arturo Casadevall and others, some of my colleagues here at Johns Hopkins, but a multi-center effort, reported on just 5,000 patients that have received plasma. And you can sort of see the cumulative point and in, in the 5,000 mark was reached rather quickly, actually in early May. But I thought it was important to get some idea of the side effects because 
you certainly don't want to administer something if you think it might be dangerous. And, and this 5,000 patient data set looked at both what happened four hours after the infusion and then also a week later. These patients generally were fairly ill, so they all had severe or life-threatening COVID-19 in order to get the convalescent plasma. And some of the major side effects of convalescent plasma are go by the rather catchy names of TACO and TROLI. Uh, TACO is more of a volume overload from the plasma. And then TROLI, the transfusion-related lung injury, is the more serious and the more concerning complication along with allergic reactions. Overall, there were 15 deaths seen within uh, four hours of transfusion, which was a small percentage of all transfusions. Four of those deaths uh, were thought to be potentially related, only one probable and three possibly. So none were deemed definitive. So overall, the thought was that the serious adverse events, even if it was attributable or not, are less than 1%. And so at least for the prospective clinical trials, mortality does not seem to have been deemed excessive in terms of risks. Mortality, if you look at this 5,000 group as a snapshot, was about 15%, which is uh, pretty much what a lot of centers, at least in North America, are reporting overall, although this definitely skews higher in older ages and those with multiple comorbidities. Then the hot news just published yesterday was a United Kingdom trial using dexamethasone, the so-called recovery trial. And the idea behind this trial was that a very low-cost agent, if used, might blunt the hyperinflammatory response that often gets uh, patients into most significant trouble if they're in the hospital and have progressive oxygen requirements and so on. Now, I give you some warnings. This is only a press release, but because it's gotten so much attention, I thought we should at least talk about it and some caveats. Uh, importantly, the reason it's getting so much press is that this is a randomized trial that really is the first one that showed a mortality benefit, or that's what the investigators have said. And these are, you know, quite reputable people out of uh, Oxford and elsewhere that conducted this study. And it was not a blinded study, and it was multi-arm. And so the dexamethasone arm sort of had a one to two ratio of treatment versus controls. They were all assigned to get dexamethasone and not at a super high dose, six milligrams, either orally or intravenously. And, and what they found was a mortality reduction in patients that were ventilated from 40 to 28%. So rather significant. And the number needed to avoid death for treatment is eight whereas those who are on oxygen had a more modest benefit and you would need to treat 25, but no benefit was seen if patients got dexamethasone who are not yet on oxygen, uh, probably because many of them may not actually evolve into the hyperflammatory state. So the press release said this was the first to show decreased mortality with an actually inexpensive drug. I'll, I'll, uh, some warnings here. Some of our critical care colleagues and other have voiced issues. This mortality rate here is extraordinarily high. Now, Northern Italy and the UK had some of the highest mortality rates that we know due to COVID. It's not clear that with the lower mortality rate populations in the United States, if this will exactly transpire. This is press release data. It has not yet been scrutinized, even in a preprint. So I think leaping to embrace this at the moment, many 
intensivists and, and others who are dealing with COVID patients are a bit reluctant, uh, but it is very promising. We're just hoping the more complete data set gets released so we can understand this better. The other important part is one of the other arms was a hydroxychloroquine arm. Uh, this was no surprise to me and many others that this arm showed no benefit for hospitalized patients. So the trial was halted. And because of this trial and other data, the Food and Drug Administration actually pulled the emergency use authorization for hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine. Again, this is press release data, but I think this is yet another nail in the coffin there. These are drugs which have yet to have ever been proven to be beneficial for viral illness in humans. So I don't think this is a surprise. And it's not clear that studies that are in progress in many countries, including the United States, using hydroxychloroquine will continue, but I know meetings are going on uh, this upcoming week. So uh, Faith, thanks. Uh, that's what I have for this week, but I think we also have some questions. Thank you for those updates. We will now continue to the listener Q&A. Dr. Allwater, this is our first question. I've heard children don't have a large enough viral load to spread the virus. Is this the case? Yeah, so there's some mixed data here, Faith, on this issue. Um, some data from China suggested that the attack rates in households with COVID-19 for children and adults are very similar. But some more recent data has suggested that children really do not acquire infection as frequently. And I think this will yet need further studies to bear out. Children clearly do not become as ill and so I think even from a functional standpoint, if you're not coughing, sneezing, and especially younger children that can't wear masks or cover their sneeze as well, clearly children, although they can spread infection, probably do so far less than adults because clearly adults are the ones that are more prone to illness. So mixed data on this question. And I could just say, I've seen both sides where they say it's the same, others say it's different. So I think we'll need some more studies to tell. Thank you. Our next question is, will children need to wear face masks at school? Well, I think this boils down to not only public health advice, but philosophical advice. And, you know, very young children are very difficult to get them to wear masks. But once you get to school age children, it's not so much the children who, of course, are at low risk for serious illness, but of course, staff and adults in the schools. And since we believe that it's possible that asymptomatic non-ill people can shed virus and spread disease, wearing face masks would seem to be most prudent by everyone. And I personally believe that if we can have better adoption of universal mask wear, this will be, I believe, the, the best way to protect many of the spikes, increases, second waves, and really help limit COVID-19 so we can really return to some semblance of normal life and so on. Uh, but even then, as loosening our guard leads to problems, you may have seen the recent outbreak in Beijing related to one particular food market. 
you know, the ability for this virus to still be around and cause problems, I think this virus exploits issues. Uh, it's, you know, viruses are so clever and they'll take human weaknesses or forgetfulness or lack of will and leverage that as much as possible. So personally, I'd feel that wearing masks universally sends good messages until we really get the kind of control with either better drugs or vaccines to make sure people are not at risk for becoming seriously ill in great numbers. Okay, and this is our last learner question. I am an employer in a large city that was the epicenter of new cases. Our governor will soon approve reopening of our business, but when can we truly safely ask employees to return? Yeah, so this is a very multi-layered question. And of course, you know, what's your uh, definition of safety? And there's so many different aspects that go into it. Have you been able to reconfigure your workplace so that employees can uh, maintain physical distancing? Is there some way, I mean, uh, that you might have some work at home, some come into work and so on and so forth. What about mass transit issues? Do most of your employees need to take mass transit? So I think there's many things that I've heard from employers that are weighing and obviously some employers uh, need hands-on, manufacturer and others. Others uh, can work from home. So I think there'll be guidance from public health officials in your state and governor in, in this regard. But how you actually adopt that and move that, I think, has to do with your own risk tolerance and also what you can accommodate in your own workplace. Thank you, Dr. Allwater. As a reminder, to claim CME or CE credit, please complete the evaluation at covid19.dkbmed.com and select today's activity. You'll receive your certificate immediately after. Any questions or issues, feel free to email us at the address listed. To submit questions, please send them to qa at dkbmed.com. That's Q as in question, A as in answer at dkbmed.com. Don't forget to access our resource center at covid19.dkbmed.com. You'll find a range of information, including the latest COVID-19 data and statistics, medical society guidelines, and resources in Spanish. To all of our listeners, please be aware that we will not have a Friday morning installation of our program this week as we prepare for upcoming program offerings. Again, thanks for joining us, and thank you for your dedication to your patients with COVID-19. Thank you, Dr. Allwater. Thank you, Faith, and thanks all for listening, and as always, please stay safe and stay well.